My guest this week on Conflict Zone is a renowned foreign policy expert who has spent most of her career analyzing Vladimir Putin's Russia. Fiona Hill joins me from Washington, where she has advised three U.S. presidents and co-authored a book on Putin. Her testimony in the first Trump impeachment trial made her a household name. There, she warned of the danger Putin's destabilization efforts pose to Western democracy. Now, as Putin pushes forward with his invasion of Ukraine, where does she think the war is heading? He doesn't see the sacrifices of his people as a great tragedy or as something uh, to be factored in here. So he is prepared to keep pushing this to the fullest extent, and that is the problem that we're contending with. Was this Putin's plan all along, or have decades in power changed him? And what sort of Russia and Ukraine could emerge? Fiona Hill, welcome to Conflict Zone. Thanks so much, Sarah. Great to be with you. Ukraine says that it is bracing for a renewed Russian offensive in the next three months. They think that some 200,000 fresh troops are being prepared and that Moscow could have another go at Kyiv. What do you think Putin's strategy is? Well, look, I think that's a reasonable assessment, and certainly um, it's well uh, founded on the part of Ukraine to be so cautious about this, because we know that back on February 24th of this uh, past year, 2022, that was Putin's intention, was to take Kiev, uh, perhaps by menacing uh, Kiev with that huge long column of armoured vehicles and men that were sent in uh, that direction and uh, anticipating that uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, would flee and that the government would fall. Uh, but it's certainly the case uh, that, uh, as we know, that didn't succeed the first time around. But it's certainly the case that Putin has still got his sights on the capitulation of Ukraine, one way or another in this conflict. And if he thinks that having another go at Kiev would... Uh, uh, be successful, then he will certainly try that. I think it's also signalling in terms of uh, the large number of troops that are amassed on the border of Belarus, Putin's recent visit uh, to Belarus uh, to meet with the Belarusian uh, president, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, that Putin remains determined to press ahead with this war. And that really is his mindset. He has not completed what he set out to do in February of 2022. And he's determined to see this through to his end, not to our end. And in fact, uh, in the past months, we've seen Putin um, suffering humiliating defeats, in fact, in Ukraine. Uh, Russian troops being incapable of seizing and holding large parts of the country. Um, reservists decimated at the front line, one of them describing the situation as being thrown into a meat grinder. Is Putin losing the war? And in your opinion, is he having trouble admitting it? Look, I think this is all from our vantage point. I'm not sure that Vladimir Putin sees this himself, and it may also be that he's not getting all of that information that you're reporting here. And in fact, that the information that uh, we're getting is not being transmitted to him. And obviously, then you might, in fact, see Western reports on this as propaganda. And it's also part, you know, for him of the information wall, constantly presenting uh, a very bold and uh, confident frontier. So we always have to bear that in mind, that we're not entirely sure what it is that Vladimir Putin knows about this war um, in the first instance and what his attitude is towards the information that might filter into him from Western reports, you know, like this, for example. But Putin has also made it very clear throughout his career that he's ruthless and that he's determined to play a price. There's been a, a recent long report in the New York Times in the, the United States about the war, 
and they actually are citing someone close to Putin in the Kremlin saying that Putin is prepared to sacrifice up to the full 300,000 Russian forces that were recently uh, recruited or drafted. For him, he doesn't see the sacrifices of his people as a great tragedy or as something uh, to be factored in here. So he's prepared to keep pushing this to the fullest extent. And that is the problem that we're contending with. So then let's look at where the Ukrainians are coming from, for example, because uh, Volodymyr Zelensky says that the vast majority of Ukrainians want to deoccupy all of their territory, and that is everything that Russia took in 2014 and in the past year. Is there any scenario, any scenario at all, where you think that Moscow could ever accept that? Well, look, first of all, let's just look at it from the Ukrainian perspective. They are fighting for their lives, literally, their families' lives, their territory, their independence and sovereignty. And any country that had been invaded would do exactly the same. So we have to put that into uh, the picture, first of all. Imagine, everybody who's listening to this, if this were you, what would you do? You would want to fight uh, to get back everything that you absolutely can. Now, whether that is realistic or not um, is something that we're going to have to see. But, you know, sometimes wars have to be fought and country has to be defended and your own lives are, are on the line here, which is exactly what's happening in the Ukrainian perspective. What the Russians are fighting for is basically the vision of Vladimir Putin of an alternative version of European history. So all of Europe is at stake here in terms of our territorial integrity, independence and our borders, particularly after World War II. So there is actually a realistic scenario in which we do not accept Russia's claims to Ukrainian territory. We cannot accept them in the international law. We cannot accept them in the UN Assembly, for example. And it may be that Ukraine, over time, regains that territory, but perhaps not always on the battlefield. So there's many different ways of thinking about this. And I know that in Europe right now, there's a lot of concern about this. This is the third great power conflict in a century in Europe, looking at World War One and World War Two. It might be very uncomfortable from a German perspective uh, to think about this. But in this larger sense, we've said since World War Two that we're not going to permit this to happen again. And certainly there's a lot of responsibility on Europeans' part, and especially the United Kingdom, the United States, for guaranteeing Ukraine's independence and sovereignty and territorial integrity. When Ukraine was pushed to give up um, nuclear weapons at the end of the Cold War, we promised them that nothing would happen to them. Certainly the UK and the United States did back in 1994. And what's happened? They've been invaded. So the messaging from what Russia is doing here puts everyone at risk. How, how Probably about, not just in Europe. How about the messaging um, to the domestic public as well within Russia? Because um, what seems quite clear is that uh, the mission has gone far longer than the Russians expected. Um, how can Moscow sell this invasion and, you know, potentially any, any deal um, that, that might come thereafter as a win and claim it mission accomplished, for example, and have those goalposts moved in recent months, would you say? Yes, that's all pretty complicated. I mean, in terms of uh, Putin's own goalposts, they have not moved. But I would say that for the average Russian, absolutely they have. They were told this was a special military operation that would be over in a very short period of time. Most Russians were told that, even Russians around the Kremlin. The whole idea was that you know, within a week to two weeks uh, that uh, Ukraine would capitulate 
and that uh, the whole relationship between Ukraine and Russia would be resolved. That's not the case. Most Russians thought that they were watching this war from afar, that they weren't implicated in this, that they weren't responsible for this. Since the uh, basically the decision by Putin to expand recruitment into the military, that's not been the case of, at all. We've seen since February one million Russians leaving. Those are people who obviously were opposed to the war, didn't want to get drafted. So one million people directly affected and all of their families and friends uh, by this war. We know that uh, in many quarters, the war is not popular. There are lots of Russian business people who have been uh, affected by this. All of the knock-on relationships uh, between Russia and the region have been um, affected. Countries like Kazakhstan and Armenia, as well as uh, Moldova, for example, all reassessing their relationships with Russia as a result of this. And we also see in opinion polls that more Russians are in favour of ending this war. But of course, as you're asking, on what terms? And we've seen Putin uh, also put to one side regular meetings that he has with the press and uh, uh, basically big meetings that he would have uh, televised with the public. They're completely reassessing that. It's still possible for Putin to declare victory in some fashion at this juncture, but it doesn't seem likely that he will do so. So I think this is a question that can't be answered now, but that will be evolving as we get further into 2023. And I think what you were referring to there is Putin cancelling his annual press conference, the first time it's been cancelled in, in a decade. And I'm wondering what you thought when you saw that, for example, and if you read anything into it um, with regard to how secure Putin is today um, or whether he's in danger of losing power. I think Putin's problem right now is he no longer looks infallible. So Putin's power was based on uh, several things. First, the power of the constitution, because he's not a member of a political party, but it's the constitution that gives him so much power as the president, almost like a czar, honestly, a, a monarch. Uh, so he has pretty much unchecked uh, power and influence. But that's also then based on his own performance and Putin is always judged by how he performed before in the past. Remember, he's been in power for 22 years now, and there's been real peaks in his power and authority. And that's also based in, on the third part uh, by the acclaim of the population, his popularity. And that has ebbed and flowed, and it's reached great heights after the annexation of Crimea back in 2014, and still remains somewhat high. But if there is a perception that that popularity is flagging, among the people around him, then the tensions mm. and the and, pressure of Putin will obviously rise. And that brings me to my next question, because you have met members of the government. You've met most of the government, in fact. Is there anyone who you think would move against him? It's hard to see that right now. I think a number of factors, if it's very clear that the population is turning against him, but also that he's losing his touch among uh, the regional power structures, and I mean that by the other former Soviet republics, and then further afield, that he's getting pressure from the Chinese, the Indians, South Africa, other countries that have uh, been you know, somewhat uh, supportive of Russia in the past. So there's a sort of feeling that the international tide is turning against Putin as well. There may be uh, pressure then put on Putin to rethink. Right now, there's not a lot of uh, examples of that or evidence of that. We, we're seeing things, we're seeing uh, uh, people criticising the conduct of the war, but so far that hasn't translated into outright condemnation of Putin, although there's lots of murmurings you know, that filter out into the press 
and uh, through uh, other back channels. So again, it's something we have to watch very closely. I wouldn't count Putin out to this particular juncture, but it's very clear that this war has not gone in the way that he anticipated. More than 20 years ago, uh, Putin, he came to Berlin. He uh, gave a famous speech in German before the Bundestag where he said the following. He said, der Kalte Krieg ist vorbei, the Cold War is over. With what we know now, was it a charade to mask a master plan bent on empire, or has Putin and his aims changed over the years in power? I think they've changed over the years in power as he became more confident in the position and as he started to really think of himself as the manifestation of the state. I think we can look back to this to 2007, 2008, the famous speech that he gave at the Munich Security Conference, uh, where he expresses his frustration uh, with Russia not really getting its way in uh, European and international affairs and not being able to have a veto over European security, his demands that the United States withdraw from Europe, for example. In 2008, at the infamous Bucharest summit, uh, for NATO when both Ukraine and Georgia are given an open door, Putin declares then that Ukraine is not a real power, it's not a real country, and that part of it belongs uh, to Russia. And since then, if we start to trace his statements, we should have been much more attentive to this. Putin starts to talk about a different version of Russian and European history, and one in which Ukraine doesn't exist. And Russia is dominant and Russia gets back the lands that it lost after the collapse of the Russian Empire as well as the Soviet Union. He's written articles in Die Zeit. He's written articles about and essays about Ukraine and Russia being fused together. And frankly, this is where our responsibility lies. We never pushed back. After Putin had a long article in Die Zeit, there was no official response from the German government or the other European governments. We've been always allowing his narrative to, narratives to stand and not pushing back against them to the point that he himself then believes that he is right and that his interpretation of Russian and European history is the correct one. We're all wrong. Well, let's talk about what was coming out of the German government, in fact. Uh, German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier said after the annexation of Crimea that lasting security in Europe can only exist with and not against Russia. In fact, he thought that this was not part of a master plan that Putin had. So in that context, I'd like to ask you, because he's part of a school of thought that, especially at that time, believed engaging Russia and hoping for change through dialogue and trade was the right approach. In hindsight, what do you make of that approach? Was it naive? Well, it was naive to... Uh rule out the things that Putin was saying you know, at those times that run contrary to that viewpoint. It's not to say that dialogue or trade or any of the outreach to Russia was wrong, but we needed to have a very clear-eyed, hard-nosed assessment of the kind of person that Vladimir Putin was and of his views and to take those into account and figure out what we were going to do with them. So dialogue is also an instrument. It's a vehicle for pushing back on views that are contrary to ours, and we should have called him out because there was far too much of an assessment that this really was meaningless, that this was just for a domestic audience. Well, it wasn't, and it's very clear. And 2014, the annexation of Crimea was a violation of every rule that we've had since uh, the uh, end of World War II. It was a violation of things that were enshrined in the United Nations General Assembly. And there have been multiple resolutions since then calling Russia out on this. And that is the problem. We have failed to recognise that Russia has been at war with Ukraine 
since at least 2014. So then let's fast forward to today, because um, so far NATO allies um, in, in recent months and other partners of Ukraine have been praising themselves for their unity. But, you know, talks over the latest round of EU sanctions, for example, have been described as acrimonious by diplomats. How concerned are you that their unity is already starting to show signs of cracks? Well, I am concerned because I think this really reflects the lack of realisation of the situation that we're all in. Whether we like it or not, Vladimir Putin has declared war on the West. And he's done this multiple times. All we have to do is to go back and assess all of his statements. This is not my analysis. This is not hyperbole on my part. This is what Vladimir Putin himself has said. Again, if we go back to 2007 and the Munich uh, Security Conference, Putin's put us on notice that he is asserting a different view of Europe. And on many occasions, including when Dmitry Medvedev, who, who was president at the time, came out to Berlin and made statements about new European security, Russia's always been trying to push for a different view in which it has a veto and a say over how Europe is configured. And now we've gone from a cold war to a hot war. And the battle over the future of Ukraine is, in fact, a battle over European security. We have not realised that. And everyone is always reacting to Russia and Russia's narrative. I also believe that we have to engage with Russia and figure out uh, where Russia's place is in Europe. But we cannot deny the fact that Russia and Vladimir Putin has declared war on us. And he made that very clear on multiple occasions, most recently again in September, on September 30th, when he annexed the territories of the Donbass and Zaporizhia and Kherson in addition to Crimea. He made it very clear then. And there's complete denunciations at all time on the West. And that includes Europe and the European Union and NATO and the United States and uh, frankly, also Japan, South mm. Korea and many of our other partners. And we have to realise that. Poland, the Baltic states, uh, many of the countries, uh, the Scandinavian Nordic countries have realised this fully. The United Kingdom has realised it. And it's sinking in here in the United States. And the problem is many European countries are in denial. And that's why it's acrimonious. They're trying to frankly, put their heads in the sand like ostriches and pretend this isn't happening. Well, I'm sorry, this is happening. You say that it's sinking in in the United States. Um, and in fact, uh, the U.S. has been the single biggest supporter of Ukrainian defense and humanitarian efforts, we, we have to mention, when we look on a per-country basis. Um, when, we, when we look forward, as the U.S. prepares for the 2024 presidential race, should Europe and Ukraine take U.S. support in the war for granted? Look, I think, you know, part of the problem is that every single country um, is having a domestic debate about this because, you know, unlike uh, World War One and World War Two, this isn't as clear cut. Uh, people are, of course, you know, having a hard time processing exactly what is happening here. And as I said, it's sinking in, certainly at the um, top levels of uh, politics here in the United States, even behind the scenes in the Republican Party. When you look at the members of Congress who are not the most vociferous uh, in the base for former President Trump, for example, the professional staffs, and certainly in the population uh, at large, I've spent them the last year back and forth across the United States talking to audiences, and people um, realize what's going on here. Of course, they would just like to find a way out of this. They would find a like, like to find a resolution, a solution to this war. But there does still remain a lot of uh, popular support for Ukraine, for what's happening here. And the key element is strategic communications. It's how we talk about it, how we talk about what's happening, how we find a way out of this. So that's going to be the key 
for continuation of US support. But behind the scenes, there's a lot more support than appears to be in terms of the rhetoric and the debates about this. Okay, because, um, you know, we all know that, that you famously addressed the US Congress during the first impeachment trial of Donald Trump. And at that time, one of the things that you did, you, you chastised lawmakers for helping Moscow to sow discord by entertaining a fictional narrative about Ukraine interfering in the 2016 election. You say you're having a lot of conversations with people, but, you know, fundamentally and, and, and at their core, has America and its politicians learned its lessons that Trump will try well, some- and sow chaos and exploit it? Excuse me, well, that, look, Putin, we'll that Putin will try and sow chaos and exploit <laughs> it. Apologies. Well, that's a bit of a, an appropriate Freudian slip, actually, because, um, you know, obviously there's a big debate about the future of former President Trump at this uh, moment in the United States. There is the January 6th committee that has um, basically referred, you know, some of its reports to the Department of Justice. So there's going to be um, a lot of uh, political upheaval around uh, the 2024 campaign, which you can be sure will also centre around Ukraine itself, because, of course, the first impeachment trial uh, for President uh, Trump, former President Trump, was related to his phone call to President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine, trying to extort him uh, to open up uh, corruption investigations into now President Biden and his son Hunter Biden. So you can be sure that there will be a lot of political chaos around this. But uh, President Putin has not stopped trying to sow chaos, of course, either in US politics or in German politics, uh, which is also a major factor. You have, you know, three million people in Germany who speak Russian and who are often watching uh, Russian television. We continue to be in an information war, full-on information war with Russia right now. And Russian propaganda is obviously getting traction. The reason they are asking these questions is precisely because of this, because um, there is uh, a lot of disinformation about the the war and the war's origins. We have to remember it's Vladimir Putin who decided to invade Ukraine, and he's trying to blame the United States and NATO and the Western Europe and Ukraine for the fact that he is invading. He's trying to say he was provoked. He's trying to say that it's Mm. our fault, when actually it's his decision. And it's all tied up in his view of himself as the czar or the modern czar of Russia and the manifest destiny of Russia to reclaim lands. He's claiming that history only started in Europe in 1783 when Crimea was annexed for the first time, annexed for the first time by Catherine the Great. He's trying to basically deny that prior to that 17. Uh, 83 date that all of European history before that didn't exist. So we are involved in history wars with Vladimir Putin and also having to contend with the full-on onslaught of Russian propaganda and it behooves our own governments to be frank about this and to push back. In your book, you call Putin a survivalist. Can he survive this? Actually, he can. Um, Putin is uh, very capable of adapting and he can survive if we let him survive in the sense of uh, being able to prevail in this, you know, political and information war and this war in uh, in Ukraine. Um, if Putin um, uh, gets put under pressure, of course, that also wouldn't be surprising given this massive strategic miscalculation that he's made. But he's also quite capable of being uh, so ruthless and playing so dirty that he can ki- live on, you know, to keep on uh, basically prosecuting this war for some time to come. So a lot of it depends on us. To everybody who's listening to this um, broadcast, uh, to all of us, you know, have a responsibility to speak out against it. And also to um, the responsibility lies with all of our governments to figure out a way to end this war 
that doesn't just give Vladimir Putin exactly what he wants. A call to action there. Um, you were in Moscow. You had a front row seat as the Soviet Union was collapsing in the late 80s. What does the future look like for Russia with or without Putin when this conflict ends? Well, look, this is a very difficult time and it's uh, tragic for Russia because one man has completely turned the clock back on everything that Russia has achieved since uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Russians, frankly, um, up until now, were living their best lives. Uh, anybody who's been to Moscow can see that and the rest of the country as well. And Putin has turned the clock back here. In some respects, he's trying to turn the clock back to 1780s, but he's turned the black clock back in some respects to the 1950s, to the Stalinist era in terms of the persecution and repression. And many Russians who saw their future as being entwined with Europe in so many respects, thinking of all the Russians who live in Europe, who worked in Europe, all the multinational companies uh, that were based in Europe, that trade that you referenced before, those economic ties, those have been destroyed. Some of them will never come back. There are many companies that will never contemplate investing in the Russian market again. Even if sanctions are lifted, it won't be what it was before. And Russians are now hated by Ukrainians for generations to come. And Russians now look like pariahs, double pariahs uh, in Russia in the way that, you know, honestly, uh, Germans felt back in the, the 1940s and in the immediate aftermath of World War II. It's going to be a long yeah. road back. It's not impossible because, you know, here we are. This is Deutsche Welle. We know that countries can recover from this, but it's a lot of hard work. And that's, you know, what we're going to be facing uh, with Russia again, which is starting again to figure out how we engage with Russia in Europe in a new European trade, economic and security context, context moving forward, and how we rebuild Ukraine and how we rebuild those relationships between Ukraine and Russia will be a major problem. Europe has changed as a result of this. The world has changed. There's been knock-on effects globally uh, from this war. We're at one of those inflection points in European and world history where you know the future is still somewhat uncertain and has yet to be written. Fiona Hill, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us on Conflict Zone. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate it.